0: This is High Performance, our gift to you for free every single week. This is the podcast that turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. Yes, I have got a cold. And yes, this is what awaits you in today's episode. I
1: love being number one in the bestseller list. It's just a thing that uh, nobody can take away from you. You know, you've done it. That That is the success that you get. It feels really great. I allowed no doubts at all. I thought, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be successful. It's going to be okay, which is a ludicrous, delusional thing to do, because writing a book is like buying a lottery ticket, probably even worse odds than that, to be honest. But if you allow that doubt to creep in, you're never going to get anywhere. You know, so many writers are all about themselves. They buy the leather jacket and the black polo neck and this a pack of Gaulois and so on and they think this is being a writer and it's not about you it's is the reader happy is the reader turning the pages are they desperate for the next book that's the only measure of success i had an idea i can't remember what it was for a a move or a scene or a line of dialogue even and i thought you know what i could save that for the second book and then i thought wait a minute now if you don't give 100% to the first book, there will not be a second book. And so that was very seminal for me that you've got to live in the moment. You've got to give it 110% that day. And I always took that approach that every book I wrote, I made myself think of it as the first and
0: the last book I would ever write. We love putting people in boxes, don't we? Lee Child, an author. Lee Child writes books about Jack Reacher. What about Lee Child is a human being with some amazing experiences, some bold decisions, some huge failures, and some incredible learnings for everyone? And that's what today's episode is about. Um, I mean, I, I like, I'm like a massive Reacher fan. I've just been watching the new series on Amazon. I have every single Jack Reacher book, and I kind of wish I'd told Lee that. Well, I don't know why, but I wish I had. Um, and so when we knew he was coming on the podcast, I was personally really excited. But I still didn't know anything about Lee Child. I knew about the books he'd written and I think that's the the joy of this episode is that we all know or many of us know the books, we know the characters, we know the stories. What about the person? What sort of mistakes has he made? How has he lived his life? What are the highlights? What are the lowlights? What does he want to share with you? What's his opinion on teaching and on young people and on taking risks? It's time to find out. I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. Can I also just say thank you so much to everyone who has bought a ticket to our show that's coming to the O2 in March. We've sold out the O2 for High Performance Live. It's a massive one for us. We can't wait to be there. If you're listening to this episode on Monday morning, I think there might just be like a tiny handful of tickets left for our show tonight at the Lowry Theatre in Manchester. Come and join more than a thousand people packed into that theatre, special guests, amazing learnings from the podcast, some really fun stuff as well. So if you're listening to this on Monday, the 7th of February, um, get yourself to the Lowry Theatre tonight if you can get hold of the fun of few tickets that remain for that. We're also coming to Edinburgh as well towards the end of February. So if you're in Scotland, come and see us there. Um, but whether you see us live, whether you listen on the podcast, whether you're a member of our club, the High Performance Circle, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. Today's episode comes next. Lee Child is the author of the brilliant Jack Reacher novels. Not only do they fill my own bookshelves, but they probably fill yours as well. They've sold over 100 million copies worldwide, which is an incredible number. And now the big news is Reacher comes to Amazon Prime. I'm already set up with a subscription, ready to watch it. So many of you know the story of Jack Reacher, but do you know the story of the man behind the man well it's time to meet him it's a pleasure to welcome to the high performance podcast lee child lee hello
1: hey guys really good to be with you yeah thank you
0: this might be slightly different to um some of your other interviews today lee but this podcast exists to delve into the the minds on and the learnings of some of the world's highest achievers so in your opinion what represents high performance
1: well, I guess that's dependent on what field you go into. You know, If you wanna become a motor racer, then sure, you wanna win the races and become world champion or whatever. I went into being a writer and the structure is somewhat imposed upon you in that sales are measured and there are bestseller lists and so on, uh, which I always feel kind of weird about You know, because writing and reading is not the Olympic games, should there really be a ranking of that nature? But there is, and given that there is, then obviously my instinct is: if you're in it, you better win it. I love being number one in the bestseller list. It's just a thing that uh, nobody can take away from you. You know, you've done it. That is that is the success that you get. It feels really great. Well, I was going to ask you, Lee, if I can
3: take you back to the start of your writing journey, then, because I'm intrigued by that job you'd had at Granada for 18 years when you were made redundant. And you spoke about how fear and hunger was a motivation for you to begin writing. Can you tell us about what your thought process was of dealing with this trauma and what you learned from it that you still use today to write?
1: Yeah, it was a, I mean, it was in one way a super stressful period because I was 39, uh, about to become 40, and that is like a classically bad age to be out of work, you know, tragically, it's too young to retire completely, but nobody wants to hire you when you're 40 and you're sort of too old and too kind of tired by that point to go through that interviewing process that you used to do when you were 20. It was a really miserable prospect, really, and and scary in that, you know, I was like everybody else. I had a mortgage and I had a kid in school and I had uh, credit cards and stuff like that. Uh, So in practical terms, it's a problem. But simultaneously, I also felt that it was also kind of the last chance. It was your last opportunity to change or do something different. Um, it's halfway through your work in life, more or less. And you've gained a lot of discipline. You've You've learned a lot of things. You're a different person by then. You're not the idiot you were when you were 20. You can look back over the first half of your career and say, What have I got? What have I learned? How do I use this going forward? So in one way, it seemed like a really shining opportunity. And I I played a psychological trick on myself, which was to completely ignore the negatives and just concentrate on the positives, which was, yeah, I can start over. I can do something different. I can be somebody new. Again, I played another trick, which was I allowed no doubts at all. I thought, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be successful. It's going to be okay, which is a ludicrous, delusional thing to do because writing a book is like buying a lottery ticket, probably even worse odds than that, to be honest. But if you allow that doubt to creep in, you're never going to get anywhere. So people would ask me, what are you going to do now? And I'm writing a book and in my own mind, like night follows day, it was going to be a success. And people would look at me like with this rather
0: apprehensive, worried expression, like he's also gone crazy. I love that story. So where did this growth mindset come from then, Lee? Because to take the leap is one thing, to take the leap and to be smart enough and educated enough to know that if you control your mind, then more often than not, you can control the outcome. Where did this come from?
1: Yeah, no, deep down, I think it came from Birmingham, which was where I grew up. And for those people that don't know Birmingham or don't remember it at that time, it was a manufacturing city where they could do anything at all. Whatever you wanted, somebody would make it for you. In the 19th century, long time ago now, 200 years ago, really, It was the Silicon Valley of the world. Anything could be done there. Uh, And it was really the last of the industrial cities to fade away. So when I was a little kid, it was still going full strength. And it was all based on the fact that whatever you wanted, somebody could do it for you. They would do it well. They would do it with a little bit of understated pride. And then tomorrow, they would tell you how to do it better, faster and cheaper so it was an artisan approach and it was totally baked into me that i believed in my, deep down that if you did the work and you you got it right then somebody would buy it it was that simple because that's what i saw all around me and and not in a sort of pretentious highfalutin way it was all down and dirty you know whatever you wanted you want a bolt you want a nut you want a steering wheel. When I was a little kid, for instance, the Ford Cortina came out, which was not made in Birmingham, actually. It was made down in Dagenham. But Birmingham was a car town, and so the gossip was always about cars. And there was this story going around in about 1961 and 1962 that somebody had redesigned the steering wheel for the new Cortina like 20 times in order to save a penny I'm making it. And a lot of people sort of thought, well, that's stupid. But if you were a Brummie, you understood immediately. A million steering wheels is a million pennies and that's worth saving. And it also got past the argument, what is art and what is commerce? They're both basically the same thing. So that was my background. And so I thought, if I do the work, I do it properly, it's got to work out.
3: I think one of your great talents, Lee, is the fact that you seem so open to experiences. I've read the quote from you that you said that writing was a second career for you, you know, having pursued law at university, where you said you were open to learning about clarity of expression. And then the work in the theatres was about the show must go on. How have you remained so open to the different experiences and kept that curiosity alive?
1: I think if you are open to uh, to things, you can never close off. You know, it's how you start. You know, in a weird way, life is about teaching you that you don't know much, but you've got to be open to that possibility. For instance, you know, I'm doing a lot of interviews because uh, Reacher has got, come into Amazon Prime streaming television and before i was a writer as you said i worked in television but you've got to know what you don't know and to quote clint eastwood a man has got to be aware of his limitations and my limitation obviously is i left television 25 years ago so and that is like five or ten generations of television since then when i left in uh, or was kicked out in 1995 The internet had barely been invented. You know, nobody knew anything about it. And the idea of streaming television was way in the future. So if you're open to the fact that you need to learn, you're simultaneously open to the fact that you don't know everything yet. And I'm quite happy to say there is a quality to streaming television that I don't understand. You know, it, it was not around for me. And so I need to learn it. And I can't imagine living any other way. I mean, whoever, at
0: what age do you know enough? You just don't. I'm really interested to talk to you about process versus outcome, Lee. Like, do you look at the the new series of Reacher and think, I want that to be the most streamed program on Amazon? Do you look at your book that just came out here recently in the UK and you want that to sell a certain number of copies? Or have you understood the power of just the process, writing the best book you can, creating the best TV series you can?
1: Well, one follows the other, that um, you've got to do the best job you can. I mean, in terms of books, absolutely, yeah. I I remember a very early uh, thought that I had when I was writing the first book. I had an idea, I can't remember what it was for a a move or a scene or a line of dialogue even. And I thought, you know what? I could save that for the second book. And then I thought, wait a minute now, if you don't give 100% to the first book, there will not be a second book. And so that was very seminal for me, that you've got to live in the moment. You've got to give it 110% that day. And I always took that approach, that every book I wrote, I made myself think of it as the first and the last book I would ever write. There was a very famous baseball player in America, Joe DiMaggio, and people asked him, you know, why, why do you play so hard every day. And he said, because, you know, there could be some kid who's never seen me before. And therefore, I've got to be the best I can be every single day. And that is the only way to do it. Storing things up for the future sounds like a great idea. But in the arts or anything creative it's a very bad idea if you've thought of it then use it today
3: and one of Jack Reach's mottos that I've read you attributed to yourself again Lee is that he hopes for the best and plans for the worst can you tell us a little bit about the pros and cons of that approach
1: yeah I mean I think it's obviously uh, inspiring and personally important to to hope for the best you've got to have A positive outcome in mind. Otherwise, what's the point of doing anything? Um, If you're undertaking something, then yeah, aim for a good target. But you've got to be aware that you might not reach it, and if you don't, then you've got to have a plan B, and you you can't be caught out being unprepared. And um, I didn't really do that as a young person. I imagined life to be very linear. You know, you would you start somewhere and you'd go up and up and up and then you'd finish somewhere else and you get a gold watch and then you'd be um, retired and then pretty soon you realize life is actually not linear it's maybe two steps forward one step back or one sideways or whatever and so if you were Unprepared, you're letting yourself down. So yeah, you got to you hope for the upside, but you got to be
0: aware of the downside and know how you're going to deal with it should it show up. And we have a lot of people listening to this who are teachers. We have a lot of business leaders, um, employees, and employers. What are the processes that you go through when you're writing or when you're creating anything to make sure that you are operating at the absolute top of your window?
1: Well, first, a big shout out to teachers <laughs> because um, you know that is so key and so critical and I'm sure you guys can quantify it, but I bet every person who's got somewhere has at least one teacher in their past that has somehow inspired them or so on. I certainly did one particular, I mean half a dozen in in tiny little details, but one particular teacher that kind of forms you. My daughter had exactly the same experience, one particular teacher that completely inspired her and shifted the course of our life. Teachers are very important, very undervalued. And what you gotta do after that is, realize that you learned something, that your life was altered and and was shifted in terms of course, and then keep yourself open to that possibility. It might happen again. If at all possible, pass that on to somebody else. It's like a two-way obligation. Keep your mind open to the fact that there may be another teacher that twenty years later will change your life again, or it is, in fact, your obligation to help other people if possible. And everybody can. Everybody can help somebody else. Pay it forward. That's what I, I think is one of the biggest obligations in life. So, would
3: you tell us about the intervention that that teacher made on your life that you described?
1: It was. I was at high school, and he was the. Uh, he was an English teacher, but it was nothing to do with English. It was to do with the drama. He ran this drama club uh like after hours and super professional in the sense of you know you're a teenager you're 16 17 years old or something and it's it's all about you and he was like no it is not all about you it is about the audience first second and third and that was life-changing to me it you're serving somebody else you are especially in this kind of business you know, so many writers are all about themselves. They buy the leather jacket and the black polo neck and this a pack of gallwars and so on, and they think this <laughs> is being a writer. And it's not about you. It's Is the reader happy? Is the reader turning the pages? Are they desperate for the next book? That's the only measure of success. It's an odd thing. It's a juggling act because being a writer is monstrously egotistical. I mean, You're sitting there saying... I'm writing something that is worth other people's time reading, you know, which is a ludicrously egotistical thing to say, but you have to believe it. Once you then have achieved that, you've got to remember it's about the reader, it's not about you, it's not about. Uh, you know, getting in the gossip pages or being famous or anything like that. It's keeping the reader happy, which boils,
0: comes back to the Birmingham thing, doing your job, do it right. I think it's brilliant. Was that also driven home to you when you worked in the theatres, when you were kind of operating in the shadows, really learning about the fact that it's the audience first, it's the colleague second, whatever happens, you know, the, the show must go on. Yeah, the show must go on. Absolutely. that—that That is about respecting the audience.
1: But along with that in the theatre is this, truly joyful hypnotic thing of putting on a show i'm a total sucker for that the the idea of getting together and and putting on a show which is a a separate unique joy really with the theater because you're doing it live you're doing it there and then what you do is instantly reacted to by the audience television typically you know there's reviews at the previous night's TV in the paper. So that's like 12 hours delayed. If you're doing a book, it's it's possibly a year delayed by the time the book comes out. And by the time the mass market has read it in paperback, it could be two years. Um, so the, the theater is magical from that point of view, that it is instantaneous. You can, the hush of an audience in drawn breath, happening in real time is a fabulous thing. And it's therefore quite a quick introduction to what works and what doesn't. And doing things in collaboration with other people and the communication with the live audience uh, was a wonderful, wonderful thing. I love that. As a consumer of theatre, too, I mean, I've seen some shows that are hysterically funny. And there is no sensation on earth like being one of a thousand people literally helpless with laughter you know that's just a wonderful feeling bit like why i like going to the football you know i like football as a sport i like it as a you know to observe the technique and the athleticism and all that kind of stuff but what i really love about football is the madness of the crowd when you score especially in a tight match or an important game when you score that hy- hysteria in the crowd 50,000 people simultaneously hysterical with joy is one of those uh, one of those feelings that's probably never existed before because in in most of our evolutionary history did we ever have 50,000 people experiencing the same thing at the same time probably not uh, so it's a it's almost a new discovery that is addictive my problem is I'm a villa fan so those
2: So the benefit
3: of that feedback loop that you described, Lee, that the theatre offers you that immediate feedback to whether a line lands well or a play is going down well, who provides you with the feedback loop when you're writing to say, this is of the usual high standard of your previous writing?
1: You have to do it yourself, obviously, because it's a completely solo job. You know, to be be technical about it, obviously there are publishers and there are editors and there are booksellers and all that kind of stuff, so... There is ultimately a team involved at some point, but while you're actually creating it, it's the loneliest job in the world. And so you've got to have, there are two halves to your brain by this point. One is the writer half, and one is the reader half. And you don't become a writer unless you've previously been a passionate reader and an extensive reader. And you've got to learn to let one half of your brain comment on the other half, um in one in in a lot of ways it directs it i never write with a plan i never have a plan or an outline every every next line is an invention that is based i i came to realize based on me as a reader kind of telling the writer half of me what what you need to do now it's like having this voice on your shoulder saying yeah we need a cliffhanger here we need this we need that and so the feedback comes from yourself but it's a kind of
0: different version of yourself. After all this success, after all these book sales, after this incredible journey and remarkable story, what is it that drives you now? It's
1: a kind of contract that uh, that changes over the over the years because when you start out you're it's a sort of financial thing. You're trying to make a living it's so therefore it's a financial contract. Then when you do become successful, it's purely an emotional contract with the reader. The reader gives you something, and I'm not particularly talking about the money, because books are so cheap, you know, that if, if a reader reads a book and doesn't like it, it's not the money that I worry about, it, it's their time. They're giving you two or three days of their life uh, that they can never get back. And uh, that is a huge responsibility. So it's an emotional contract not to let the reader down. That's what really motivates me now. Lovely.
3: So, just to conclude, then, Lee, we normally finish our podcast interviews with a series of quickfire questions. So, if you'll permit us to do that, the first one is what are the three non negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you have to buy into?
1: I think number one is uh, get over yourself. In other words, understand that you are, if there's three people there, you're a third of the equation. It's not you and two extras you are an equal part. Um, Number two would be, therefore, treat people with the same respect that you would like to be treated yourself, which does not mean necessarily exaggerated courtesy or deference or anything like that. But if you like people being pleasant to you, then it's your obligation to be pleasant to other people. And I can't think of a third. I mean, I think those two really just about cover
0: it. Are they good enough? They can they can uh, they can cover for the third, Lee. If you could go back to one period in your life, where would you go and why?
1: I would like to go back to about 1969. I think I was, um, you know, about 14, 15 years old. And if I have one regret in life, it's that I didn't pay enough attention. You know, those were magical years with a lot of great things happening: music, uh, politics, society, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, it was. And I had plenty of that, but I sort of I do remember thinking, oh, I can catch up on that next year or something. And you never do. So in my generalized regret is I didn't pay enough attention. So I would pick a great year like sixty-nine and go back and just live every minute of every day fully open and fully aware to it.
3: What's been the biggest sacrifice you've made in your journey to success?
1: The biggest sacrifice is purely just juggling time you have to give up doing certain things uh when i worked in television you know long irregular hours and uh, so i missed a lot of my daughter's life because it was shift work i saw a lot of it that other guys didn't see who worked nine to five but overall yeah, it's the sacrifice of time that, um, and you look back again, and you think, yeah, well, you know, next week, I can catch up or whatever, but you never do. Those days are gone. So the sacrifice you make is, uh, if you do A, you're not doing B. How important is legacy to you? Really not important at all. I mean, I think that is such a uh, kind of highfalutin thing. Like I said, I'm a Brummie. And, uh, you know, if you uh, start talking about your legacy in Birmingham, they're going to look at you really peculiar. <laughs> so I think that's the joy of life, actually. It doesn't matter, you know, if people are enjoying what I wanted, what I'm doing now, that's fantastic. I think it would be absurd and bizarre if somebody was studying <laughs> me in college 100 years from now. I mean, that would just be ridiculous. Not going to happen. So I'm completely indifferent to legacy. I would like to be remembered for a few days as a nice guy who did his best. And uh, a week later, I don't care if everybody forgets about me.
3: And what advice would you give
1: to a teenage just
3: starting out on your journey?
1: I would say don't panic. Uh, you know, you're looking at a guy who eventually hit his stride at the age of 40. So I think it's there's a lot of pressure on teenagers especially our system, somehow demands that they narrow down their choices, they narrow down their studies, and they've got to develop a target. And you've got to realize you're going to be stuck in that track for 50 years, possibly. So uh, if you can't think of it, if you're not making a, a good start to it, do not worry. Something will happen sooner or later. I think we'd all be better off if actually we didn't have to do that, you know, just... Maybe if you want to be something, do something else completely different deliberately just to broaden up your experience a little bit.
0: And the final question, Lee, what would be your one golden rule, your one final message to people that tune into this podcast for them to live a high performance life? The golden rule is
1: uh, it ain't a dress rehearsal. you got to, this is the only life you get. So just get on with it. I've got two mottos, do it once and do it right. That's probably the best bet. And... um You can fix some things later, but other things you can't fix. Um, Pay attention and stop and smell the roses sometimes. You know, that's what a lot of people regret not doing. Uh, So if you can put all those three together or four together, don't panic if you can't decide what to do. Have fun day today, but take it seriously. You're not going to get a second
0: chance. Lee absolutely brilliant a real insight in the way that you've lived the way you've operated devoid of any ego um but I think a great reminder and probably the biggest lesson for people is that nothing's fixed nothing's permanent you know you lost your job at a time that was really difficult to you and here we are all these years later and it's possibly the greatest thing that ever happened
1: sure is thanks guys Thanks, appreciate
0: your time Damien Jake it feels to me like there's a there's a lot to unpick there isn't there
3: Yeah, so much. I think the starting point is almost the invisible nature of humility Mm. in him. When you think of the achievements and the successes and the fact that he's got this new series coming out and yet so how down to her and humble he was, I think is a superpower in its own right.
0: I love the fact also that it's yet another person who's joined us on High Performance and it's not all about the great moments and the high points and look at me, I, I know all the answers. You know, he's really someone who obviously... Like, the key was that moment where he believed good things were going to happen to him. But actually, it's all about recovering from a setback. And we hear that time and time again with the guests on this podcast, you know?
3: Yeah, that was the bit that really intrigued me in his story about the fact that he'd been working at Granada Television for 18 years, you know, and then he was made redundant and forced with the prospect of having to start again. And that's frightening for anybody. But as he said, with a wife and child at home and a mortgage to pay... The pressure of that is incredible when we think about it. But like you say, it is just complete sense of certainty that he was going to make a success of it is a lesson that any of us can take away and apply.
0: Well, you've done a lot of work in this area, haven't you? That, you know, people who believe they're going to be successful are successful because they see the opportunities that perhaps others miss.
3: Yeah. So there's a brilliant book that's come out recently called The Expectation Effect on this that's that's talking about placebos in medicine, where... Studies in America have suggested that placebos are becoming almost as effective as the real life pill in terms of studies. And part of the reason is, is because of that sense of expectation that you think it's going to make you better. And the power of the mind is greatly untapped in terms of the the effects that it can have. So I think the fact that he's got this sense of certainty that he's going to make a success of it starts to open his brain up to possibilities rather than probabilities, to, to opportunities rather than threats.
0: And I also enjoyed the conversation where he just said, When I was 20, I knew nothing, you know, I, and now he sits there with a much more experienced head on his shoulders. And, you know, we often get messages from people who are in their late teens, they are in their early 20s, they are really desperate to be successful. They live in this world where everything happens instantly, whether you're ordering a pizza or whether you're watching a movie from the cinema, you can get it in 10 seconds' time at your house. And he's a good reminder that some things take time, you know, even writing a book and having to wait a year or two for it to come out and be released and be successful is is a very obvious example. But actually, I like the way he spoke about the fact that, you know, life is not a linear journey. It, It has its ups and downs and you have to kind of allow it to run its course, even when you feel like you're in a tricky spot. We've
3: used a metaphor before on the podcast, Jake, around the Chinese bamboo that you can plant it and it might take five years before it grows, but the question is, when does that growth happen? Is it in year five or is it in the four years preceding it? it? just The growth is going on in a hidden way that none of us can see. And I think the story that Lee gave us around his teacher just reminded him that it's not about you, it's about other people and therefore putting other people at the centre of what you're trying to achieve and growing in that way. It was dynamite for him.
0: I think if you break it down, he suffered a setback and overcame it. He was in a really difficult period in his life and he chose only to look at the positives. He has absolutely zero ego and he focuses on the process, not the outcome. I know it wasn't a very long interview with Lee, but actually if we were to go through all of the things that make up the common traits of our high performers, well, there they are.
3: He's given it to us in the most succinct form. I think, one, again, one of the things around Lee was that when he left school, he went on and studied law. But he never did it with the intention of being a lawyer. He said he wanted to learn about clarity of expression, being able to communicate in the most accessible way possible. And you've just given a brilliant summary of what he shared with us in 30 minutes.
0: Brilliant. I really enjoyed it, mate.
3: Yeah, it was a privilege. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, mate.
0: It was a cool episode, wasn't it? A cool episode of the podcast. And thanks once again this week for everyone getting in touch. Do you know what I'd like you to do before I um, share some of the messages after last week's episode? I would love all of you to think right now about one person who you could share this episode with one person who perhaps needs to hear those messages, one person who maybe you haven't spoken to for a while and you might not even know that maybe they need a bit of help in that direction. Just have a think. Um, Because passing on this podcast is the single most valuable and powerful thing that you can do. So whether it's sharing it on your Instagram or on your social media channels, whether it's putting it on LinkedIn, using it in the WhatsApp group at work, or just sending it directly to one person saying, give this a listen. I would love you to do that. Um, Thank you so much for all the comments after Carl Loco joined us last week. If you haven't listened to that episode, he's a former gang leader in Brixton, turned businessman. Matt on Instagram said, a great listen, I loved Carl's articulation and the trauma romance part was a real insight into that conundrum, the things that he must have faced in that environment. What a pleasure to listen to this today. Uh, Mona Lisa, maybe not her real name, but who knows, says, amazing story with Carl, great interview. This gentleman shows you with his life that if you want, you can change anything. I'm impressed. And Sean says, thank you so much for the thoughtful questions in this conversation. I felt like they allowed more meaningful responses from such an eloquent person. Some sincere wisdom was shared there. And a few people that have joined us on tour as well. Um, Sarah said, thanks so much for hosting a great show in Birmingham. We loved what you had to say. Um, And we wanted to hear more from you and Damien at the end of the show. The answers to your questions were super interesting. Simon came with his 16 year old son to our live show and said last night was fantastic to hear the inspirational stories and how you can work towards leading a high performance life. And Danny on Instagram, hi Danny said, what a buzz. I wanted to cartwheel when I got home last night. And we've also got a question that's come in from Liam. Um, Liam says, a question I'd love your advice on is what six values or characteristics do you feel are most important for children, especially in primary school, to develop and focus on my initial thoughts surround resilience, curiosity, and kindness, as well as if there's a motto that you could suggest to encompass all of them. It's a great question, Liam. Um, I wish once again that uh, our Professor Damien was with us. Sadly, as I'm I'm sure you know, he's lost his father in the last few days, so he's having a bit of time out. I would say that... IQ is not as important as I can. And I think if we were to instill one message in our young people, it's I can is so much more important than IQ. I believe we test young people in totally the wrong way. In a class of 30 kids, why should they all be asked the same questions on the same subjects? Why are science and technology and English and maths at the top of the class? Why is drama and art and dance and and music down towards the bottom? In the education system why are some considered more important than others it makes no sense to me we're all creative and if anything i think that knowledge is less valuable than ever before i I understand that when the current education system was created we lived in a world where young people had to be taught things because there was no other way of finding out that information but hey the internet's kind of changed the game like i do maths with florence and if she's stumped on a question she says hey alexa what's 47 divided by three And she gets the answer. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach young people maths or English or science or technology, but what I am saying is we now live in an era where information is at our fingertips, it's on our phones, it's on our smart devices, it's there. We need to spend more time working on the emotional intelligence of our young people, not just on their intelligence. We need to teach them that I can and I will. is better than IQ. We need to make sure we get to their heart, not just their head. We need to develop young people with genuine resilience, empathy, love for one another. I've said on so many occasions that opinion is the lowest form of knowledge. Uh, Empathy is the highest form of knowledge. We need to develop that in our young people. But I would just say, if you want one thing for young people to tap into at the moment, is to focus on I can and I will, rather than IQ. I think you can't go far wrong in that respect. Listen, thank you very much for joining us for today's episode of the High Performance Podcast. I hope you've got loads from it. I hope you've learned. If you want to get more, then just delve back from the 100 plus episodes that we've recorded so far. And you can also get more from us as well. If you go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, we've got a members club where you will get exclusive podcast episodes before anybody else. They're all ad free. You can watch them as well. You'll get a newsletter. You'll get access to exclusive discounts and brilliant businesses that we think that will be helpful for you and loads of other stuff all you need to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com thanks very much to the whole team for their hard work Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio to Will to Hannah to Eve to Gemma the whole team on the High Performance Podcast but most of all thanks to you remember there is no secret it is all there for you be your own biggest cheerleader and make world class basics your calling card I'll see you next time